0: We've talked about Oscar bait before on this show, and how that can mean a lot of different things to different people. But like pornography, we know it when we see it. Now some things can be classified as timelessly Oscar-baity, like doing a film about the Holocaust and getting Steven Spielberg to direct and Tom Hanks to star, with a screenplay by Tony Kushner and a score by John Williams. Other actors, directors, writers, composers, and even cinematographers have what could best be described as an Oscar bait era, when they go on a hot streak for anywhere between 5 to 10 years where they couldn't fall out of bed without landing on the red carpet. Daniel Day-Lewis had two eras, first in the early 90s, and then again from 07 to his ostensible retirement in 2017. But sometimes Oscar streaks just end on their own anybody remember Paul Haggis? Won back-to-back screenplay Oscars in 2004 and 2005. He wrote the first two Daniel Craig Bond movies and did the screenplays for Clint Eastwood's Iwo Jima duology. Then he wrote and directed The Next Three Days, a Pittsburgh-set Russell Crowe prison break dud, that tries to make my hometown look like Alcatraz, which is only slightly more believable than their attempt to make Liam Neeson a grizzled yinzer. After that train wreck, I don't even think Paul Haggis gives a shit what Paul Haggis is up to these days. Speaking of Russell Crowe, today's film. It might be tough to remember in 2021, but Russell Crowe was about the Oscar-baitiest casting you could snag at the turn of the millennium. Between 1997 and 2012, he was in six Best Picture nominees, two of which won the prize in back-to-back years, and he himself was nominated for Best Actor three times, winning once. His phone-throwing, Meg Ryan-stealing bad boy reputation kept him from being considered a capital-P prestige actor, but almost every film he appeared in for close to ten years was considered a heavyweight Oscar. contender, even if those Cinderella Man dreams didn't always come to fruition. Today we're discussing what is arguably his best work, and it checks all the Oscar bait boxes. Acclaimed director? Check. Period piece? Check. War movie? Check. Intricate production and costume design? Sweeping cinematography? Meticulous sound design and technical effects? Check, check, and check. It even pairs Crow with a former co-star from one of his previous Best Picture winners. In any year besides 2003, this would have been the film to beat. But like it or not, the Oscars that year belonged to Return of the King. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So hold fast with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we review Peter Weir's peerless adaptation of Patrick O'Brien's novels of the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World.
1: And
0: do then, do because... call. Call. better now, you'll fire, fire. Right, it It's on close. It's
2: Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners... Katie. And Liam. And today, we are here to discuss the 2003 epic naval warfare from the early 1800s, or depicting the early 1800s. Master and Commander the Far Side of the World from 2003... Uh, this film takes its name from I believe I know two of the books in this series, of which there are at least twenty. I believe it's the first and second book. Is that right? It's not. Oh, well, <laughs> oh, here comes Liam to correct <laughs> Sorry. No, uh,
0: I think Master and Commander, I think, is the first one. But then the one after that is like Post Captain. Far Side of the World comes like a few books later.
2: Okay. Yeah. So they they cover both of those books and brought in different elements and changed timelines around, etc. We are not experts on the books. We have not read them. So for those listeners who have read all these books, please don't at us. We're doing our best, but mostly we're going to be covering the film. And Katie's here with our mission briefing.
1: 2003 proved to be the year of the high seas adventure films, with the smash hit Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, and the much less successful Master and Commander Far Side of the World. Pirates was released in July to huge numbers, but unfortunately that did not help Master and Commander, which didn't release until November in a bid for award success. The film is based on the many novels of Patrick O'Brien in the Aubrey-Matron series about the relationship between a successful captain in the British Navy, Jack Aubrey, and his ship's surgeon, the serious naturalist Stephen Matron. This film takes its storyline from a few different books in the series and focuses on Jack's ship, the HMS Surprise, hunting down the French privateer, the Akron, off the coast of South America. We see the ship go through all different sorts of weather, engage in multiple battles with the Akron, and face serious medical and psychological issues amongst the crew. Jack and Steven maintain their friendship regardless of the challenges, and work together to bring the surprise through with courage, fairness, and above all, dedication. With a budget of $150 million and an eventual box office take of $212 million, it's fair to say that the Master and Commander fell far short of the studio's hopes. Critics generally liked the film, remarking on the amazing art and sound design, and the great performances from the cast, especially Bettany and the minor players. But most took issue with the length and pacing. While the box office numbers weren't what they wanted, the film did do well during award season. It was nominated for ten Oscars, including Best Picture and Director, but only one for Cinematography and Sound Editing. And Weir did take home the BAFTA's Award for Best Director. While there has been some talk that this film was the first in the series, the director has dismissed the idea, saying that it did not generate the numbers to justify such an expense. I've long been a fan of this kind of swashbuckling and adventure, and will readily admit that the much-maligned Cutthroat Island was a favorite of mine as a kid. How much experience did you two have with the film set on the high seas during this era? And Liam is totally laughing at me for loving Cutthroat Island.
0: I am. (laughs) I didn't want to, like... Audibly laugh.
1: Don't malign Gina Davis. Okay. I, I'm
0: yeah, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I actually was mocked soundly for my love in like junior high of Thelma and Louise.
1: Well, you get what you settle for.
0: Back when Ridley Scott was still a phenomenal director. Was that Ridley Scott? Yes. I did not realize that that was Ridley fucking Scott.
2: I know. I still haven't seen The Duelist, which is like his first big motion picture. It's on my list. That's fascinating. I learned
0: something new today.
1: So, did you guys like those kind of films?
0: I did. Well, you know, I grew up watching like the old Errol Flynn swashbuckling movies, you know, the obvious like The Adventures of Robin Hood, but also like The Seahawk and Captain Blood. So, uh, this is. Not a foreign genre for me. I watched, was it A&E and the BBC back when A&E did, you know, arts and entertainment and not Dog the Bounty Hunter reruns? <laughs> <laughs> they used to do, I mean, they did some great things like the Pride and Prejudice miniseries, which is oh man, fantastic. Roll your eyes again, Dan. You just don't know the magic of that miniseries. But they also did one on Horatio Hornblower, much like this, another series of, of novels that had been adapted. Uh, I think that was by, was it E.M. Forrester? I could be wrong.
2: And there's some connection here with the Hornblower. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> I'm just bringing it up. I'm just stating that there is a connection. <laughs> they might share some characters in common is what the connection might
0: I be. I don't know that that's true unless they're historical characters
1: you are correct it is c.s forester
0: c.s forester not e. uh, okay i knew forester c.s forester
2: oh he wrote the uh, good shepherd right
1: you guys are making know. me google fast today
2: get on <laughs> the googlies. i believe he wrote the good shepherd upon which greyhound is based you are
1: correct huh. he did write that
2: interesting okay, cool. and the
1: african queen
2: oh shit Ooh, that's on my list that's a bogart right? yeah it, is, it, it is. is fucking humphrey bogart we need to hit a bell when we hit like uh, ten movies that we mentioned that are not the film we're talking about. <laughs>
0: but no, those were those were a really good series. there was like I can't remember if it was necessarily a miniseries or a series of mini-series, much like the Sharp books were were done as a, a BBC production with Sean Bean, but this Napoleonic war era naval combat, like I've I've watched a lot of things that take place in this period this is easily the best of them
1: it's definitely the most authentic
2: for sure yeah it it does give you that feeling so i remember seeing this i don't know if i saw it in theaters but in 2003 i was just joining the marine corps in january so i was going through boot camp and all that crap uh i don't know if this was released in the summer or what november Okay, so I'm sure I saw it at some point, but I was just too young to appreciate it. If you
0: listened to the mission briefing, man, you'd know that this was released <sighs> late in November.
1: For awards season.
2: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Probably
2: part of me was like, eh, fuck the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Even though there are Marines in this, the Royal Marines. There are. And he fucks up and he shoots the doctor. Right, yeah. But And we'll talk about this a little bit later when we break down the roles. That's something
0: Marines do, right? They just, like, shoot at things and accidentally hit their own people. They just shoot at people, yeah.
1: The, the An albatross, which my English major husband was like, as soon as he saw that, he goes and pulls out his Thick ass collection book that he got in college I was like, all right, here's the rhyme of the ancient mariner. ancient mariner. You have to, yep, you have to read all of this before you podcast. And he made me read like two whole things out of it.
0: Wasn't the name of the whaling ship also the albatross? The one that they, the the one that they rescued the guys from.
1: I'm not going to have an answer for you on this. <laughs> no, that's you're too, not. That's you're just going to have to trust me. I'm going to trust you, Liam. So there's there are few
2: creative decisions that were made, changing over from the novel to the films. One is the novels, uh, or at least the beginning is set in 1812, beginning of the War of 1812. This is set in 1805, so a little bit earlier. And then the French frigate, the Akron, was actually an American ship in the original story. And they- change that around
1: you're right i remember reading this as well and from what my memory is they changed around to make it more palatable to american audiences just for the box office they're like
0: everyone wants to see us kill frenchmen yeah they don't want the american ship to be the bad guys right for reasons but they did say that it was yankee made
1: yep Mm -hmm. which definitely Mm -hmm. would not have been accurate at the time the u.s was not selling ships to other armies
0: well if it was a privateer it might have taken it hey, they true. might have taken it. it was was the impression that i got i don't think that they necessarily sold it but he's a privateer essentially being a pirate who got a what is it a, a letter of mark uh is what they would call it where they they get that uh, official letter that says hey you're cool now but like you can only attack our enemies."
2: Yeah. Essentially during this time, privateers were like legally sanctioned pirates. So they carried a letter from the government that they were working for, basically saying that they were allowed to attack and take command of and raid foreign ships. So the British government had privateers that could attack French ships and vice versa. And it was just all over the place, on top of actual piracy, which had its own world and culture and rules, etc. So that's kind of the world that we're getting into here, as well as Napoleon at kind of sort of the height of trying to take over all of Europe and the British fending him off where they had the biggest advantage, which was at sea. Because of course, the British did not have a large standing army at this time. This film depicts the HMS Surprise which was also a frigate as it tells you at the beginning 28 guns about 200 souls on board that, that term is still used on ships and aircraft by the way if i ask a pilot if an emergency happens i have to get like fuel rainy stuff like that uh sob souls on board is still something that you ask son of a bitch <laughs> yeah so interestingly the surprise was so the actual ship they used in filming was a replica of the HMS Rose, which was in combat and a ship of this time. The replica was built around 1970, I believe by a Canadian company... And then it was acquired later by the studio. Uh, now it sits in San Diego. So you can actually go tour this replica ship that was built in the 1970s. But two specifications from the original blueprints for the Rose. So, you know, more modern materials. I think the sail has some like Lycra and stuff in it. But other than that, it's pretty period accurate, which is cool. Uh, next time I'm in San Diego, I'm definitely going to do that. The story starts out
0: with the orders for Captain Jack Aubrey and the HMS Surprise to find this French privateer, the Acheron, that has been causing havoc and is heading towards the Pacific, intent on bringing the war to those waters. They are two Destroy, capture, or take her as a prize, or or I can't remember the exact...
2: Sink her, burn her, or take her as a prize.
0: But, before they can even find the Acheron, the Acheron finds them. And it opens up with a pretty jarring piece of, of naval combat, where the surprise is pretty handily crippled uh, right out of the gate. And they have to just narrowly escape by... Rowing into the fog
2: yeah, the Akron fucks
0: yeah, yeah the the, the does indeed fuck. so you have one of the dynamics that's set up pretty quickly is Mr. Hollum, midshipman who's too old to be a, a midshipman, and he and another midshipman, Mr calamy, Peter Calamy, who is is younger but seems immediately more competent and confident. But Hollum has the watch and he spots the Acheron in the fog. And he's like, you have to make a decision. What do we do? Do we beat to quarters or not? And he freezes. And so Callum, beats to quarters,
1: but doesn't take credit for it. That's that was intriguing.
0: Yeah. It doesn't. Well, it, it wasn't his job. He was like, uh, yeah, I didn't see it, but Hollum says he saw
2: it. I think one of the, coolest things about this film is the subtleties with which leadership, especially military leadership, is depicted, and the juxtaposition of good, solid leadership and poor leadership, both as a combination of different men's personalities, as well as their training and competence level, and... Hollum is brought up right away as the example of someone who, like, may know his stuff. Like, he's never really shown to be incompetent or not know what he's doing, but he just lacks confidence and lacks basic leadership skills. And he's just unlikable and can't pull himself out of that as much as he's trying to. But it's like, man, once a crew of salty sailors has it in their head that you're incompetent and you don't have the balls to, like, lead when you have the watch, that's a bad situation and the captain lucky jack aubrey played by russell crow of course has to deal with this right because of course he's in charge of the whole ship and he, i mean one of the things i noticed constantly in watching this was that a ship depicting 200 men working together through storms getting fired at chasing another ship etc it's amazing how much leadership that requires because when shit hits the fan you don't have time for people to be questioning their roles or like oh i don't want to do this i don't want to do that it's like immediate right Mm -hmm. battle quarters like everyone has to know exactly where they're going and what they're doing and they have to be competent And there's just no time. Even the captain is kind of just sort of lightly overseeing things, but he's relying on his officers to make sure that things are happening the way they're supposed to be. One of the things that this film does really well is depict accurately the breakdown of the rank structure and how the ship is organized. I'll give a shout out right away to our three researchers that made it into this episode. Our old friend Dave... Ben, Curly, and Samantha. Samantha, we want to welcome you to the show and thank you for participating in the research. This is Samantha's first time doing research for the show. So thank you very much. She is super deep in the books and really loves them. So she jumped on this one right away and she gave us a really nice layout of how the British Navy was organized at the time. Thank you, Samantha, for doing that. So basically you had a breakdown of... I'll I'll try and mention the similarities to modern navies, but this is not far off to how things work now. You have commissioned officers, warranted officers, which in modern times are known as warrant officers, and the crew. So, commissioned officers are your lieutenants all the way up. They have commissions. Nowadays, that's someone who goes to college and has training for that. Back in the day, it was a little bit more related to class if you were an officer. You do see colors at times, and so the four colors that you see on the ship are dark blue for officers, light blue for midshipmen. I'll cover this in a second, but the midshipmen are not commissioned officers. They're like officers in training, basically. And then you have the Marines in red, or crimson, and the crew in white. And the crew has subdivisions as well, but those are the four general colors you see on the ship. Captain John, Lucky Jack, Aubrey is the post captain that's his official rank of course as captain of the ship he's still just called captain just like in any other navy you could have various different ranks and be in charge of a ship but if you're in charge of the ship you're referred to as the captain he was the commanding officer of a rated ship meaning it had 20 guns or more it's kind of funny. The title master and commander at the time was actually a title, but that was the title of a commander for an unrated ship. So, had he been on a smaller ship, less than 20 guns, that would have been his title. The lieutenants, which are the lower ranking junior officers on the ship. The Luf-tenants. lieutenants. Lieutenants, <laughs> right? Lieutenant. I don't know the history of when lieutenant turned into lieutenant, but yeah, that's definitely how they said it.
0: I think it's always been spelled that way. Right. I don't think mm-hmm. the spelling changed. It's just, that's how the
2: British pronounce it. The British might still call them lieutenants. I think they do. Someone write it and let us know, because I know that we have uh, at least some enlisted men. british explain to us, please. Yeah, someone yes. british explain to us.
1: That's such an obscure
2: fact.
0: Lef- Lieutenant.
2: The lieutenants have different ranks, you know, first lieutenant is the most senior, you have second lieutenants, that's again, still kind of the way it works, or Lieutenant JG in the American Navy, but the larger the ship, the more the lieutenants, this is your middle management, right, they're going to make sure that they take the captain's orders and make sure all the enlisted men are doing their work been shipment also known as the young gentlemen or the prospective officers so it's, it's it's almost like on the job ROTC like instead of being in college you're like on a ship actually being in combat and getting shot at and learning lit quite literally the ropes i'm pretty sure this is where learning the ropes comes from it comes from naval training and learning how to man all the sails etc they had to serve for at least 2 years before they were eligible to uh be commissioned as officers and they could be as young as 12 years old. So, this is accurate in the film as you see these young boys who are in officers' uniforms. Those are midshipmen. You have Marine officers, of course, along with some Marines, and they're mostly tasked with sentry duty, manning the gun crews, boarding parties during battle. The U.S. Marine Corps is modeled after the British Royal Marines, which at this point in history, American Marines existed because, as Katie well knows, the Marine Corps was formed in 1775. They were like the new one, right?
1: You're, you're just going to keep bringing it back, aren't gotta you? Got to do it.
2: There's only so many things we can shit on Katie about because she's so nice and awesome, so we got to we gotta throw it in there. Liam comes up with new things we can shit on him for You know, every episode, so that's really not difficult. The first jobs Marines had in the American Navy were shooting doctors, shooting stuff for sure. But they were they were the sharpshooters, so they would go stand in the upper parts of the ship, and when there were boarding parties, etc., they were. I mean, you could call them snipers, but of course they were mostly armed with like flintlocks and muskets and stuff, so the fire wasn't very accurate. But that was kind of their job. Um, And you see this role portrayed as well by the British Marines here. You have warranted officers as well, which nowadays in the American military are called warrant officers and kind of mysterious. And I never really understood how that worked, even when I was in the military, run into them every once in a while. But the general consensus was these officers aren't commissioned and they're not really around to be in charge of other people. They're around to be the experts on one particular platform. So a weapons system, basically, it's like they've been enlisted for so long they can take some correspondence courses and some tests and become a warrant officer in, like, the artillery, for example. And they're going to assist the commissioned officers.
0: So, like, Mr. Allen on the ship, who's the sailing master, would he be a warrant officer or was he an officer officer? The the old guy with the curly white hair.
2: That's a good question. Could have gone either way, because as we'll find out in just a second, there are a lot of different subdivisions of the regular crew as well. So I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, the sailing master, which is one of the warranted officers, considered the same rank as a lieutenant and could also command the ship in the captain's absence. So again, if there were commissioned officers on board, it wasn't his job to be in charge of people. But if they left, they are higher ranking than the enlisted men or the crew. They had expertise in navigation, piloting the ship generally a lower social class and therefore unlikely to advance if they obtain a commission. Surgeons were warranted officers, so I think that our main man...
1: Stephen Matron.
2: Matron, not Matron. Matron. Generally, there was only one surgeon on board these ships, assisted by a trained surgeon's mate, called assistant surgeons after 1805. Higgins. That's right. The surgeons and surgeon's mates were also responsible for the hygiene and cleanliness of the ship ensuring fresh air occasionally made it to the lower decks and keeping stock of food and grog safely meaning making sure
1: making sure things weren't spoiled or not safe to eat exactly
2: because as we see in several scenes in the film while they have you know some 19th century surgical implements etc this is before germ theory really caught on so you don't see a lot of hand washing or anything i mean all those scenes i'm just like oh my god everything's gonna get infected (laughs) i'm just like (laughs) freaking the fuck out
1: they they put that coin in the guy's head yeah they're digging
2: into dudes brains and putting a coin in there And i'm like could you just rinse that out with some salt water first well the
0: no man that that the coin was silver
1: does that matter
0: yes Silver is- Because it repels bacteria. It's, it's antimicrobial. Right. Uh, oh, it's like okay. copper. So even though they don't know about like bacteria and germ theory, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily know the science behind these things, but they know silver good- other metal, bad. <laughs> right,
1: you're less likely to get superating wound with silver.
0: In the 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 old west, they used to put like a silver coin, like they'd put a silver dollar in their canteen to keep the water fresh. Oh, interesting uh, and I stuff! Like, know. like like oh. they knew stuff like this. That's why silverware was made out of silver because it was better for you than
2: it was more sanitary.
0: Yeah, if you if you look at like the reason I found this out on a on a YouTube channel, Tasting History, which is a fantastic, oh, it's a great YouTube. channel, yeah, it is, it's fantastic, and I love it. But mm-hmm. uh, they were talking about the history of tomatoes and the reason why people thought tomatoes were poison for so long is because to the upper class they actually were because they were eating on pewter,
2: oh. which has a high
0: lead content, which is fine, but the acid in the tomatoes was actually leaching the lead out and people were getting sick from it. And they were like, why are all these peasants able to eat tomatoes and it's not killing them? Because they're not eating on pewter. They're eating on like clay pots and shit. Yeah. So like all kinds of fascinating things. Like they knew what, what would kill you and what wouldn't kill you. They just had no idea why.
2: Well, and again, they weren't practicing hand washing. So I imagine that the number of people who were dying of secondary infections, etc., from wounds and surgery was pretty high at the time.
0: That's why little Lord Blakeney has to, uh, has to get his arm chopped off when mm-hmm. his arm is
1: broken. Like he's got
0: like splinters sticking out of his arm and it's like, well, that shit's got to come off.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. When the captain gives him the book on Lord Nelson, you'll notice that in the portrait on the front page, nelson is missing the same arm he lost that arm in the battle of the nile which i'll mention in a second but i like that connection that he's kind of he knows what he's doing you know not only was Horatio nelson worshipped by all these british sailors but he was like hey look this guy was an amazing naval officer and he was missing an arm so don't worry about it it's
0: from everything that i know about the books this is not true but my own personal headcanon is that Lord Blakeney is the descendant of the Scarlet Pimpernel, maybe like his son or grandson. (laughs) Scarlet Pimpernel was Sir Percy Blakeney. And I just like to think that that's, you know, I don't know how many people here have read or have seen uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel, but uh, that's that's my own thing.
1: So while we're talking about the specifics of how the Navy runs its stuff, the first 15 minutes of the film, and I'm like, Why are there all Mm -hmm. these children Mm -hmm. on
0: board? So many kids on this warship. Tiny babies. It's like a semester at sea.
1: Right? Like, they're just so young. And then I learned that the standard was 12. Right. You could go to sea if you were 12, and they generally wouldn't Shanghai or impress kids younger than that. And you could, of course, volunteer, as I assume Blakeney does, because, you know, it, it was considered honorable. And he wasn't going in as just a cabin boy or something. He was going in as an officer or something close to that. A I midshipman. Mean, but I also realized, because, uh, of course, I've watched movies and read books about this era. Like, that is accurate. Like, mm-hmm. my son is 13. And so I watched it with this eye of, like... That could be my child right? up on there doing all of this stuff. Oh, cool. He could
2: be learning how to use a sextant and then yeah. also taking part in a raiding party and having his arm cut off and being what? shot at.
0: Like, oh, shit. Getting his own ration of grog and everything. Yep. It'll be great. I'm
1: tempted to make him watch this with me and be like, okay, next time you complain about mowing the lawn, well, at least I'm not sending you off or on an enemy ship, or making you command the whole vessel. I'm just making you mow the damn lawn.
2: <laughs> right. He's going to be like, yeah, but also I don't get to stop into port in Polynesia and have my first sexual experiences. Mom, thanks for that.
1: Or get grog. You know, I don't get, don't get no rum.
2: Yeah. No getting shit faced with Russell Crowe in
0: the cabin. Right. I also had to wonder, because I think sometimes he in particular is called out as being a lord because his father is dead his father was a lord so he's going to be a lord i i assume mm-hmm. the title is going to yep. go to him
1: and he has the highest rank on the whole ship he's the one with the power in that way even yes. if it's just in words
0: and i was wondering if he had other siblings because i know that sometimes in these in these older family dynamics of aristocracy you know there would be a son who was going to take the father's title. There was the son that was going to go into the military. One son might join the priesthood, but it was, it was sort of divvied out by your order. Like the, the youngest son didn't necessarily have responsibilities. So like he didn't have to have kids. So that'd make him go be a priest or some shit like that.
1: I think in this, if you are the Lord, my understanding of the aristocracy. If you are the Lord, then you are in line to inherit the title. You're not called a Lord. I believe you're called Sir, if you're not the head, quote unquote, of the family. Most likely, the family had a naval tradition, because if you were in the British Navy, it was kind of expected that your son would then go on to be in the Navy. Gotta give him some respect for at least like volunteering and actually doing
2: work and granted he's going to be an officer but like that kid's going through some shit because also like katie mentioned a second ago impressment was a thing that was going on at this time in the british service i think a lot of
0: these guys were impressed the way steven talks about
2: them yeah so basically Men, experienced sailors, or random people off the street could be legally kidnapped and forced into service aboard a Royal Navy ship. This could happen in port, where so-called press gangs would roam the town and capture able-bodied victims. So literally, if you got drunk on the wrong night and weren't paying attention, you get knocked over the head and wake up on a ship and all of a sudden you're on some three-year journey where you're basically a slave. I mean, they were getting paid, but still, it's like, what the? Accounts vary, but it's estimated that in 1812, so time of the book, a little bit past the movie, 8% of crews were boy volunteers, 15% were men volunteers, 50% were pressed Brits, and the rest were pressed foreigners or Brits sentenced to naval service as a term of punishment. Impressment ended in 1815, so just slightly after this period. But I think one of the reasons why it's important to bring this up is because Good order and discipline, which is a theme that comes up a lot in the film, is obviously really important when you're running a ship, right? There's all these different systems to be run, you know, sales, you know, repairs, mechanics, the guns, all this stuff. And people need to know what they're doing. But also, like, you have people who need to be – some are going to follow orders out of duty and devotion, some only through fear and corporal punishment because you've got – lots of people who again this is worse than the draft they're not they weren't even drafted they were abducted onto this ship and they're like congratulations you're now in the navy and you're a seaman go swab this deck or go do some other horrible chore so
1: right and face horrific abuse if you don't
2: <laughs> right well because insubordination was probably really really common because these aren't people that volunteered to do this so it's just a it's kind of like the standard dynamic that's in the military and on a ship only cranked up to 11 to me it feels like
0: well and also this movie one of the things that i like about the visual storytelling of it is right off the bat we get what a powder keg of humanity a ship can be because it it opens up with the night watch sort of like taking his stroll through through below decks and you see like these hanging sacks of things that are sort of like swaying as the the ship rocks and they're all like packed together. And then you're like, oh shit, that's just people sleeping. Like those are just the hammocks and they're all just like ass to elbows right against each other. But at first it looks like sacks of flour almost. And then Mm -hmm. you're just like, nope, those are butts. Those are butts in hammocks.
1: And I mean, even the captain, like in this, the captain gets more space, but he's still sleeping in a hammock. It's a nicer hammock, but not. You know, not by too much.
0: It's an officer's hammock. Right. He's not rubbing buttocks with the next guy over.
2: Right. Yeah, Navy life is, you know, space is restricted. And even in the modern U.S. Navy, I know for sure this happens on submarines where space is really restricted. But I do believe it happens on certain ships depending on the number of crew that's on it. But hot bunking is a totally normal thing. And that's where the shifts you know, are separated, but there's only one bunk per man. So, if you have three shifts, there are three people taking eight-hour shifts.
0: So, it's like 90 people, but 30 beds.
2: Or or let's say it's two people taking two 12-hour shifts. And so, when you're off-duty sleeping, the other dudes at work- when you're at work, the other dude's sleeping in your bed and you just take turns because it saves half the space. And that makes sense, especially on a submarine where you're strapped for room and there's only so much space. Are there so. like stiff penalties
0: for jacking it?
1: Not at this
2: time. I'm pretty sure jacking it is just understood part of the uh, the situation. Yeah,
0: but I mean, like, do you just be like, oh, sorry, I just finished. Uh Don't mind that.
2: You just got to clean up after yourself is probably the standard. But I I don't know if any sailors want to write in and tell us about (laughs) how jacking it during hot bunking works. Please feel free to write into the
1: show. And and let's take it into consideration that there is a story out there that Winston Churchill once quipped that the British Royal Navy tradition consisted of nothing but rum, buggery and the lash. And one of the (laughs) reviews I read (laughs) said something about how, it's still a mystery to today's historians how all of these men survived without women. This was from The Guardian.
0: That's not much of a mystery.
1: A British newspaper.
0: Yeah, we know where this is going.
1: <laughs> and and I, it was like, I looked at my husband and I was like, this is a joke, right? Like, d- this is a joke. Like, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> just, good God.
2: These dudes were rationing like a pint of rum a day. Like, what do you think they were doing <laughs> and they're off time (laughs) (laughs)
1: exactly the lash for bad days and the buggery and rum for good days
0: yeah giving out giving out some bro jobs
1: (laughs) and this movie has has and the review is careful to state this movie only has two of those (laughs) items
2: yeah there there was actually zero romance in the film if you think about it
1: there's a brief scene where a russell crow looks down and sees a a beautiful a hottie i assume brazilian woman cuz they say they're off the coast of brazil
2: and they are speaking portuguese so yeah yes. that makes sense
1: and he he gives her like a sultry eyed look and then it's never mentioned again
2: <laughs>
0: yeah he's like oh man that looks nice
1: <laughs> and we see no other women
2: yeah that's like no. the only woman who's shown at least like we we see in like a full shot and that's the only romance apparently in the writing originally, I don't remember if the studio was pushing for this, but they wanted to have a love romance thing with Kira Knightley. And I, as soon as I read that, I was like, thank you, God, for not doing that. Not that I don't want women in this film, but it's like, that's not what this film was about. And I'm glad they didn't pigeonhole a love story in there.
0: Well, there's also some... So, from what I understand in the books, there are... Because Jack is married, you see him writing to his his lady at home
2: and i think you see her picture at some point too yeah
0: right before he's making eyes at the brazilian girl as one does as as one does but from my understanding i think in the books there is a dalliance or two that causes some tension between him and Stephen on like an ethical level mm. uh but it's just sort of like sort of turning a blind eye sort of like oh, i wish you wouldn't do that you know that kind of thing
1: Hence, the line in the film that says to wives and to sweethearts, may they never meet
0: That's right,
2: and that is still, I think, the official motto of the British Navy on Saturdays, apparently, or maybe it's not called <laughs> the motto, but like it's still recited, and it's like, yeah, that makes sense. The Navy's the Navy, and I know
0: that, like Stephen has a woman, I don't know if it's an unrequited romance that he has for a for a woman in the books, but 20 books like they they cover a lot of ground and from my understanding that was one of the things that was really impressive about this adaptation is that it took elements from like 5 or 6 of these books and combined it into one cohesive script which is a masterwork of adaptation
2: so it's true that this is slated as of this year for a sequel right prequel. it is oh prequel yep. Yeah,
0: they're talking about doing a prequel of it. So, they're
2: going to CGI Russell Crowe into a younger man? Is that what's happening? <laughs> no. <laughs> different casting.
1: Patrick Ness. Patrick Ness is supposed to be directing it, but he's the only one attached at this point. There's no other-
0: They have a writer, don't they?
1: Yeah, the writer and director is Patrick Ness.
0: Oh, okay. What else has Patrick Ness done? I've been burned too many times to be hopeful, but I'm I'm curious about this, this endeavor.
1: Patrick Ness did A Monster Calls, Chaos Walking, and Class. I've seen A Monster Calls, and it's pretty good. I haven't seen any of his other films, but it's still enough in production hell that it hasn't even been listed on, on okay. IMDb. So, okay,
2: so it's we'll iffy. see. <laughs> but it's more a reality than it was 15 years ago when they were basically Way more. like, oh, this was a flop. Because it was originally slated to be a series, and then when the first one uh, flopped, even the director was like, yeah, there's just not. Fucking Peter Jackson.
1: Yeah. Wasn't Peter Jackson's fault. It was Peter Jackson.
2: Well, Peter Jackson did steal, I don't know about all eight, but several Oscars from this film because of the two tower, or sorry, Return of the it King. It
0: absolutely did.
1: It did not steal anything. Ooh. It did. Won it won them fair and square. Them.
0: It did not fucking win them fair and square. Because that wasn't even the best movie in that trilogy.
1: Someday I mean I agree with that someday we're going to talk Lord of the Rings and it's just gonna it'll be Dan as the go between of Liam Dan's and going I. to be the referee yeah, instead of it being me, which it usually is
2: yeah that that'll be me in the middle i don't I don't have a dog in that fight
0: oh i've got a i've uh,
2: believe it or not, everyone Liam has opinions yes I
0: do I've got a lot of things to say. I have the opinions about Peter Jackson and those fucking movies
2: all right, so. Getting back to our story, we have the initial battle where essentially our ship barely escapes the French and goes into the fog. And now the question is, what do we do? We got to repair the ship. Are we going to go into port, et cetera, et cetera. And Russell Russell Crowe is really pushing to go after the ship and kind of fix it at sea and do this as quickly as possible. And... The idea in the history behind this and what's being depicted, obviously somewhat superficially with 20 novels, I'm sure they had time to really go into this in depth. But Napoleon was at this point starting to threaten an invasion of mainland England in in 1805. So this is later in 1805. So this event basically takes place in the film in between the Battle of the Nile And the Battle of Trafalgar. So the Battle of the Nile happened in Egypt in 1798 when a young Napoleon had disembarked and the British fleet located the French fleet and destroyed all of it except for two ships. Napoleon had to abandon his men and return to France. So it was a huge loss for Napoleon.
1: And that's the battle that Jack talks about being in with uh, Lord Nelson, right?
2: Correct. This is the battle where Lord Nelson lost his arm. And this signaled the end of peace in Europe and the beginning of the War of the Second Coalition, which was the latter months of 1805, which is a little bit later than what's depicted here. In October of 1805, the Battle of Trafalgar happened, and I had to look this up myself, but Trafalgar is basically, if you're looking at the Strait of Gibraltar in between Spain and Morocco, the exit to the Mediterranean, if you just round that corner going north a little bit, there's a bump of a peninsula uh, on the southwestern coast of Spain. That is uh, Trafalgar Point, I think it's called, and so this battle happened out to sea there. And... This is the point where the French were bivouacked at the English Channel and they were planning an invasion of England and Lord Nelson had another decisive victory here where he, I'm not, it doesn't say whether he died in this battle, but he was shot through the spine. So he had a serious injury.
1: He died shortly thereafter.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think he died later, like a little after this movie takes place.
2: Yeah, so he survived long enough to accept the surrender of almost the entire French fleet, capturing 22 vessels in all. So there's a direct line between Lord Horatio Nelson and the British fleet directly to the burning of Moscow and Waterloo. Because on land, Napoleon was very successful in almost conquering all of Europe. But on sea... Nelson was the hero of the British Navy, and that's why you hear him talked about so much amongst the sailors. He was kind of a legend, as well as the captain having actually served with him a couple of times. So, of course, you know, he's telling those anecdotes. But that's kind of what's going on in Europe at the time in the background.
0: Is so that what uh, Trafalgar Square is uh, named for? That that victory?
1: hmm I think there is a statue of Lord Nelson in Trafalgar Square. Yes, Nelson's Column is a monument in Trafalgar Square in the city of Westminster. So, yes, that is what that whole thing is about. Which our British audience is, like, screaming at us right now. Like, oh my god, you guys, how do you not know this? (laughs) Because we're dumb
2: Americans, you know, that's how it goes.
1: Exactly. So, I was really fascinated to see, and I mean, I knew this, but it's something else to see it. um, Like, the thing with how young those kids are that are on board. That sea warfare... It is so slow. So very <laughs> slow. Like, there's a, another instance, the second instance, where they run into the Akron, and they escape into the fog using um, an amazing ruse, which I thought was awesome, where they build, like, a tiny thing that will have the lamps hanging from it.
2: Oh, they made it look like the stern of the ship, but it really yep. was further away. Yeah, that was cool.
1: Yep, and so then they are able to circle around, and that circling around takes them a good eight, nine hours just to get around the back of them. And it's, yeah. it's so fascinating to see. And then uh, uh, the second instance is when they're pretending to be a whaling ship. And mm. it really hits on you how long of a process is and how much grit it takes to be a sea captain. Because it's not it's not like now where it's like, all right, we're going to execute this and it will be this very in comparison to this anyway. Short length of time or even in World War 2 or World War 1 where it's like right we're going to wait overnight and then we're going to, you know, go over the top. Whereas in this it's like all right, we're planning it out the next 12 hours and then all of a sudden once we get there then there will be this close fighting. Shit's going to pop off. Right, you got to get in just the right position in order for your guns to hit the enemy ship and be able to take them down
2: the range was so much more limited than modern weapons so i think that's something you see what also
0: it's like well we fired we now we have to like hang on a second guys let's turn the (laughs) ship around and fire from the other side and just
1: (laughs) right and and the captain talks about how the higher level position when you're fighting is having the wind behind you which isn't something that you can affect like, either you've got it or you don't. got the weather gauge. Right. And it can die mid-battle, where the the wind dies, and now no one can get anywhere beyond what inertia is going to take you. So, I think the thing in this is, is that it's not just the French ship that they're dealing with, it's also the weather. Like, when they, in, they have to deal with that typhoon, and he is literally keeling the ship over to the point where the, the deck is, you know skimming the water and there are multiple men standing on the side of the boat. Mm
2: -hmm. Right, they have to balance off the ship with the men just to make sure it doesn't capsize.
1: Right, they have to, in order to maintain their course, they have to pull these crazy maneuvers and it's seen that Jack is able to do it because he's willing to take the risks. And if you know that this is pretty accurate to uh, that era's fighting style, it becomes a lot more shocking especially because there isn't a whole lot of cgi in this like Mm -hmm. they ended up filming this in the giant tank where they filmed a lot of titanic Mm -hmm. and they used a bunch of different techniques
0: so good movies can be made in this tank is what i'm hearing
1: yes i it was it's a ridiculous like over a hundred million gallons or something with how big this thing is and they used these Balloons filled with water to offset things, and like it's crazy how accurate where really tries to get with the filming.
0: Well, and it's funny because I know this came out the same year as the first Pirates of the Caribbean, which is in no way realistic. It's no way realistic, but in Pirates of the Caribbean, everything's turned up to eleven. Yes, but in the Pirates of the Caribbean series, you see things like there's a an instance where. The, They rock the ship so much that it flips over like they do that on purpose where they're like running from one side of the deck to the other side of the deck and back and forth and back and forth. And it's silly because it's like it's based on an amusement park ride that's like a dark ride where all these (laughs) like weird things are happening anyway. But it's weird because like those elements are in this. They're just it's Captain Jack Aubrey instead of Captain Jack Sparrow. You know, it's like they really all had to, they're turning so hard that everybody has to like go lean on that side of the ship. So the ship doesn't flip over, but you have like 200 dudes all like hanging on to the like top rail and lucky Jack's hanging off of it. Right. It's, it's the same kind of physics. It's just real world as opposed to fantasy goofy land world.
2: Yeah. And I, I think one of the things they did really well in this film was, And they strung this throughout the narrative perfectly so that it's seamless, but they show you little microcosms of what's going on on different parts of the ship, how that work is organized, how many people it takes to handle that, whether it's the gun batteries or the sails or the food even or whatever. And they show you all that work during different parts of the film. And then later when you're seeing a battle or maneuvers or whatever, it's kind of like in your head, you know that all those little parts of the ship have their own little worlds going on where people, you know, there's like a a officer in charge of that part of the crew and they all have to have their timing just right. A good example is when the captain is running gun drills. Later, when they get to the Galapagos, and, you know, he's like, two minutes and one second, like, too slow, do it again, you know, and he's making them run through these drills, which is definitely something that they would have done. Do you want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? Exactly. Yes. When your children sing the Marseillaise? I don't know. I've,
0: I love La Marseillaise because of that scene in Casablanca, but, like, I get it. I get it. He's,
2: he's stirring the pot. Right. <laughs> and also, something that uh Katie said, I think it's... Yeah, like, there's a scene where they're chasing them. You could see the ship. It's right there. It's, like, no more than a mile away, maybe. And they're going the same direction, right? So the French ship is faster than them. So there's a difference of maybe four or six knots. And the younger officer, or the junior officer, is like, yeah, I think it's about six hours. The captain's like, no more than five hours. And I'm like, five hours? Like, it's crazy. It just <laughs> reminds you how slow ships move, especially with all that weight on board all that weight and you're dependent on wind, but it's just like
0: at the same time. So this is not to, not to jump into like horror movies, but like modern warfare is fast zombies. This is the good old fashioned slow zombies. Mm -hmm. They're going to come and nothing is going to stop them. And you're going to see them coming the whole time, but there's literally nothing you can do about it. Like the tension in this for all that it's like, Oh, well, it's five hours out. You're just watching these guys slowly gaining on you and gaining on mm-hmm. you and gaining on you. It's like the the threat is there. It's creeping. It's getting closer all the time, and you can see every second of it. Right. is just really, really intense.
2: Yeah, and you know that that's psychologically affecting the crew the whole time. The officers have to think – Okay, who's with me and who's not? How am I going to get these people organized? Can I get everyone to, you know, perform the way they need to if we actually get boarded? Like you know what's coming, but it takes a long time to get there and that tension is done just beautifully in the film.
1: Yeah, and that plays into other aspects of their lives when the doctor is injured in an accident with the he gets shot by a Marine. <laughs> the Marine just shoots him. Yeah. Who's trying to shoot an albatross, which also seems like a terrible idea. Just
2: poor uh, gun handling here. I mean, I, I can't speak for the yes. Royal Marines, but I don't know.
0: Yeah. I- where's his trigger discipline? Yeah. None. None. I know it wasn't invented yet. Don't at me. Wait, what? I mean, they had triggers. <laughs> they had triggers, but the, I, the concept of trigger discipline is like newer.
1: When your flintlocks only work 50% of the time or so, which was about what it was then, they were a lot less careful. But the doctor gets shot, and it takes a piece of his shirt into the bullet wound, and that's how they know, okay, you're going to get an infection Mm -hmm. because the shirt is dirty. I mean, they don't know it in those terms, but- that's obviously what's going on. Yeah, they're
2: like, this shirt hasn't been washed in three months, and you've been yes. shitting over the side of this deck, and now it's inside. Just the your-
0: linen is going to start to <laughs> decompose. <laughs> For sure. Right. In there. You know, there's actually, this is weird, and again, not the movie we're talking about, but uh, has anybody seen the the Daniel Day-Lewis movie, In the Name of the Father?
1: Yes. No.
0: So, there's the scene in the beginning when he runs afoul of the IRA. And like he's stealing scrap metal or something on their turf. And they're like, look, we've told you a bunch of times, don't do this. Now we're going to have to make you pay. And what they do is they they pull his pants down because they're going to shoot him in the knee. And it's like, why do I have to pull my pants down? And he's like, pull your pants down because if a piece of the jeans goes in, then it's going to get infected and you're going to have to get your leg cut off. And that was in the 70s. So it's like, that's still a thing, I guess, that can happen. Like if any of those fibers go into the wound, it can cause problems.
2: Definitely. And because bullets inherently are sterile if they go into you. When you get a gunshot wound, the bullet gets so hot that there's no bacteria alive on the bullet, which is why also- Oh, well, I that's think, nice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, the thing is- How considerate. If you get a flesh wound and a bullet isn't causing any damage, I think it's pretty common to just leave the bullet in there and you're going to have to get patted down by TSA for the rest of your life because you're going to set off the alarm. Like there's no reason to unnecessarily pull out a bullet unless it's causing harm. And luckily they did this well in this film because the issue was the cloth that had gone in with it. They really had to get in there and clean out that wound to make sure that the doctor didn't get an infection.
1: Right, and that's portrayed in like to them that the clock is ticking, but it's still a very slow clock to the point where they have time. Stephen tells uh, the captain, "You know, we need to go on land to do this," and they have the time.
0: Well, Higgins tells him that.
1: That's right. It's Higgins.
0: It's Higgins, the bumbling fuckhead doctor, the
2: surgeon's mate. I think would have would have been his position. I'm sorry
0: surgeon's mate aka bumbling fuckhead who's just like i don't (laughs) know guys i know i can do it i need to take a look at some drawings of anatomy real quick i just need to go study captain's like the what (laughs) maybe if uh maybe if we weren't on a boat it's like, what right. do you mean if we weren't on a boat? That's all, we're only ever
1: on a boat. And and so they go onto the Galapagos Islands that they're right next to in order to perform the surgery. But even then, like, I can't imagine how long it took to like, okay, we got to get close enough and now we got to load this guy into the boat and then row out to the island. And so everything is still moving at this incredibly glacial pace for people of, you know, modern thinking where it's like, oh, you you get a helicopter and the helicopter flies you over to the hospital and all of that. But in in this time, things do not move nearly that swiftly. And it has real effects because, you know, the time in between when they decide to land and when they actually do the surgery could have killed the doctor.
0: And also, it's it's a good thing he was gut shot, honestly.
1: Right, because he could see.
0: Well, not only that, but like, I myself have never been gut shot, but like from all accounts, it's often fatal, often painful, but it takes a long time to kill you if you're not bleeding out.
2: Mm.
1: And if it doesn't nick your uh, intestines. Yeah. That's the true danger. Yeah.
0: So it's um lucky shot, I guess, for missing an albatross and hitting the one competent <laughs> doctor on board
2: within a thousand miles (laughs) lucky shot in the most unlucky way ever but sure
1: well that but honestly that's what i thought because i saw he got shot in the stomach i was like okay how far how far over is it because if you nick someone's intestines like there's no coming back from that at that age i mean it's hard to come back from that now because once your intestines are leaking
0: once you're shitting inside yourself
1: yeah, you're you're done. There's
0: nothing you can do.
1: And again,
2: right. ain't nobody washing any hands or equipment or anything. Nothing sterile. They're not boiling shit. They're not. They don't have soap. Like that's that's what I constantly think about when I see these scenes. I'm just like, oh, everything's so dirty. How is this possibly going to work out?
1: <laughs> they would have all smelled so bad. Like, how's anyone going to
2: survive this? But. Can we break from the horror for a second to just talk about the Galapagos? Because now I just, I'm just i reminded about how much I want to visit the Galapagos Islands. Why? Because the wildlife's amazing. They just
0: look like a bunch of shitty rocks.
1: And this was the first movie that was actually shot on the Galapagos Islands. Yeah, that was They'd cool. never done that before. And it, you can kind of tell because of how different and unique it looks.
2: And apparently, uh, I don't know if they're are any marine iguanas in the actual shots, but the one they show swimming was like a green iguana that they painted black and then got <laughs> it to swim around <laughs> and then tossed it in the water. I don't go know for, why, go. because those iguanas don't swim or live in the ocean. Like famously, I'm pretty sure the Galapagos is the only place where you find marine iguanas. I, they could be in a little bit more South America. I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but they're not in other parts you of the world. You should
0: ask your girlfriend.
2: I know. Well,
1: Jackie's screaming at you right
2: now. (laughs) Definitely, because we just handled iguanas down in Belize, so we talked about this. But I do want to say, for historical perspective, Darwin's expedition to the Galapagos on the Beagle happened in 1835. It was a four-year journey, but I think he landed in 1835. So it was interesting how they referenced that in this film, Without breaking character, because none of these characters would have known anything about Darwin, because he was a young man at this point. They make a comment about the doctor being the first naturalist on the islands, of course, Mm -hmm. which was cool. And then when he's looking at the iguanas through the telescope, he goes, disgusting, warts all over it. That is what Darwin first recorded in his journal when he first (laughs) saw Marine Iguana. So they actually used a quote from Darwin, which was great. And then, of course, they have a scene with a bunch of giant Galapagos tortoises, which are the only ones in the world when you see those giant tortoises that people can like sit on those are galapagos island tortoises that live to 150 plus years and there's a scene where they're just feeding them greens and there's like six of them and i was like well this is so cool they could have done this with cgi and it would have looked terrible but they actually went to the galapagos because peter fucking weir yep.
0: is the man well and the other the other nice thing this is uh again like i didn't even really think about it until you were talking about how like darwin came 30 years after this But the fact that when they go back on that, on the Galapagos and they're collecting all those animals that they have to leave them all behind.
2: Oh my God. I know the loss to science. I was just like, oh no. But it jives with the actual history
0: because obviously like, you know, the, the TVA will come for you. Like you fucked up the sacred timeline. If you, if you take animals from, from the Galapagos islands before Darwin does.
1: Yeah, for sure. Awesome Loki reference there. Oh, thank you. And the Galapagos Islands play a bigger part in this as well, because, which I called this as soon as I saw it, the Chekhov's gun in this, Mm. the stick figures. God, I can't remember what the actual creature is called. Oh, stick insects. Yeah, they, they look like a stick, and they're hiding, and Matron and... the phasmid. Matron and Blakeney are talking about it, and they're having this very deep conversation about this stick that, per, you know, this bug that pretends to be a stick. And I was like, there it is. That's what they're going to do. That's the Chekhov's gun in this movie. And then, of course, at the very end of the film.
0: The, the nautical phasmid.
1: That's what gives Jack the idea to hide what they are as a whaler so that they can get up close to the Akron.
0: And they call it the siren, which is just like, dude, you're showing your hand a little bit
2: too much.
1: I liked that.
2: The HMS, not the surprise, we promise. I mean, the surprise is also a, a hilarious name. <laughs> Does it mean something different or just like,
1: surprise, we're going to board you. So cute story from my life. My stepdaughter loves to play the surprise game where she we go up and we say goodnight to our cats upstairs. And then every night when she comes down to say goodnight. She says, okay, you got to wait. And when we open the door to our bedroom, she jumps out and goes, surprise! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and does it to all of us periodically where she jumps out and just yells it. And so the when we saw the name of the ship, my husband looks at me and goes, surprise! And I was like, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. So I enjoyed the name of the ship for that reason beyond just the silliness of it. <laughs> I don't
0: think it's a silly name. I think that it's a fine name. I like the name The Surprise. I think it's great. But here's the question. With how superstitious everybody is on this ship, they're touching wood, they're scratching the stays, and then they're spinning three times and saying the Lord, Saints preserve us. The whole second act plot with the Jonah and how superstitious everybody is. Mm Mm-hmm. How does nobody realize that an albatross flying around your ship is a bad sign, and you should probably not shoot it? Was it a thing at
1: that time?
2: I feel like it was.
1: 1834 is when The Rime of the Ancient Mariner
2: Ooh, was, Ooh. was
1: published.
2: Pre-Darwin.
1: A little bit. But it was considered a superstitious relic before then. I, guess I feel like
0: an albatross is like an old thing.
1: I think it's considered an ancient maritime superstition, but who knows how far back that goes. So I can see how they can kind of wiggle room it because the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner wasn't out yet. But I can also see why, if it's considered an ancient maritime tradition, I was like, why are you shooting the albatross?
0: Because we kill everything we see. Oh, it's Marines. What are you going to do? They got to shoot something. There's something flying we don't need.
1: Kill it. The other thing I wanted to make sure we talked about was the Jonah. Yes. Because that's
0: the entire second act almost.
1: When I mentioned in the mission briefing about the psychological issues that the crew is going through, I would think, and from what I've read from reading books about this era, the superstition and psychological health of your crew, or at least that's what we would call it today, obviously they wouldn't have called it that then, was incredibly important to everybody both having the morale doing their job, and supporting their captain. And the Jonah is, in the superstitions of this world, it, it's the bad luck guy. And you have to get rid of the bad luck guy, otherwise you're just going to continue to experience bad luck. And for their crew, it's Hollum. And partially that's because Hollum is the first one to sight the Akron.
0: He's midshipman Old Balls.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and he continues to be... Kind of the symbol of all this bad luck that they're experiencing. And that pressure gets to him to the point where he kills himself and just jumps into the ocean, which to me seems like the worst way to die.
0: Yeah. Cause well, I I remember when I saw this movie the first time, and I had no idea about any of this shit. The the first time I saw this, and Hollem like sneaks up on Blakeney. Because Blakeney's on watch and he like grabs him by the shoulder. He's like, oh, Mr. Hollum, you gave me such a fright, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, you know, you've always been very kind to me. And he's like, picks up this cannonball. I'm like, please don't kill the kid. Please don't crush Blakeney's skull with that cannonball. I really need you to not do that, Hollum, because you're throwing off some pretty creepy vibes right now. And then he's like, I'm going to jump off this boat. And I was like, oh, fuck. Thank God. Yeah. Kill yourself all day. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Leah. I
1: mean, I didn't like that character, I'm not going to lie, but I also was very aware that that character was being written and acted to make you not like him.
2: Yeah, but I found him to be written sympathetically as well. Like you also feel I, I felt sorry for him as well cuz he's I not too. He's not mean-spirited, right? He's not some kind of dickhead. He's not going after the men. He's just kind of weak and not meant to be a leader, but because of his position in society, because he's probably a rich kid, whatever, this is a position he's been put in. But you see the juxtaposition of Captain Aubrey being like the natural leader who is competent, has been proven in combat, and has already earned his men's respect. And this is the classic conundrum of the younger lieutenant this guy's turning 30 soon so he's on the older side but nonetheless it's like how do you get the respect of the men without being an authoritarian or a disciplinarian and i mean you see this there's this theme of discipline and kind of like what it takes to hold a ship together that is mostly made up of conscripts that don't want to be there in the first place and you see it when the young crew member disrespects him and bumps into him and doesn't salute him. And the captain Nagel. immediately is like, put him in shackles. He's getting
1: flogged and and he and he blames it on Hollem for sure. It, he's like, this is your fault. You're the reason why this this guy is getting lashes.
0: Well, and also the it it isn't just blatant disrespect on the part of Nagel. So a uh, thing that we kind of skipped over, is that when we were when we're in the storm, going around Cape Horn, chasing the Acheron, the the mass that they did the hasty repair on cracks while they're going around the Horn, losing Warley, who was Nagel's friend, but Hollum was supposed to go up, climb up and help him, and he froze halfway up, mm-hmm. so everybody blamed Warley's death, not so much on the captain for being reckless but on Harlem for freezing. And so that's a lot of where crazy talking old Joe or whatever really finds a willing acolyte in all of his shit talking about the Jonah. It doesn't really start to catch on until Warley dies and Nagel is just all too eager to find some place to put his bad feelings, his sadness, his rage, his depression. He can focus it instead of just on the loss. He can focus that into an anger that he can point at a person. And that person happens to be Hollem.
1: And we see that moment of doubt in the captain when he lets Worley go, because he's obviously has a connection with him. And we see him have the discussion with Matron about it, about was I, am I making the right decision? Am I... Am I obsessed with this? And Matron reassures him. And we see that the captain does feel that loss, but Mm -hmm. he never takes that loss on in front of the men because that's not what he's supposed to do. Like the men need to learn how to deal with those losses on their own because the captain is not there to coddle them or to be their emotional support. He is there to make the hard choices Mm -hmm. and to keep them safe in the bigger picture.
0: Choose the lesser of two weevils. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Which, by the way, one of my favorite things in IMDb about the mess ups in this is that weevils are not big enough to make that joke about. So they were substituted with different (laughs) bugs.
2: I saw that too, but personally, my thought was it's not just that, it's that weevils look nothing like worms weevils look like these little beetles that have kind of a proboscis like they have a long yeah. nose at the front and i'm like that doesn't look anything like a mealworm or whatever but whatever right. that that dad joke is fucking hilarious it like is. It it's is. the one thing i remembered from 2003 like if i didn't remember shit else about this movie it was that russell crowe made the joke about the lesser of two weevils and that shit cracked <laughs> me up every time and, and
1: the paul bettany's character is kind of like huh oh
2: He who would pun would pick a pocket. Yeah. (laughs) That was fucking great. Yes. So this is bringing up a lot of really good points that I see sort of condensed in the film in several scenes. One of them is after the flogging, Hollum goes below deck to get to his quarters ostensibly and has to walk through basically, he has to run the gauntlet of like the entire crew, right? And he's looking super intimidated and scared and everyone below deck salutes him, right? They put their fingers up to where their cap would be.
1: They give him the knuckle.
2: Yeah, they touch the forelock. And it was such a great scene from every character's face of like, oh, wow, this is showing that, the crew is obeying the captain's orders in terms of officers will be saluted. At him. Yeah, there's no respect given here whatsoever. And I, I love that scene because they did such a good job of depicting that. It's chilling.
0: Mm-hmm. That is a chilling scene.
1: They all have so much hate in their eyes. Even the ones who you feel like they would be more forgiving are still like Blakeney and the other midshipmen are still like, you fucked up, bro. You Mm -hmm. seriously fucked up by not owning it. Blakeney's
0: nice to him.
1: He's more gentle.
0: He's just like, leave him alone. Calumny is the one who's like, oh, he's just dodging work again. And he's like, shut up. You shut up. But like Blakeney's got his back. Blakeney's a good kid.
1: He is. He was a sweet little boy. But for me, honestly, Calmy was the most interesting because even though he doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, because you can tell that he's the up-and-coming one who is – he's not a lord. He's just a a guy who's trying to make his way and is going to become, make something of himself. And that – Doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. It's <laughs> very sad. And that's why the loss of him is so – powerful because he does seem like someone who's going to if anything take Jack's place and then no like this film is not afraid to show you how indiscriminate this kind of warfare is because it it doesn't necessarily have to be that you get personally stabbed in the heart or shot with a flintlock or something like that no one has to specifically kill you you can just die from circumstances from mm-hmm. you know You can be in battle, and the cannonball hits something in the right way and shoots you full of lead or whatever, and then you're done. It's a perilous life that these men are living, and that makes a certain level of poignancy to all of their stories, regardless of how small or big they are in impacting this story.
0: Last thing I wanted to to touch on with Hollum is the funeral that they have for him because after he kills himself of course they get their wind back. Like that was like the last the last thing is that they go through this patch with absolutely no wind. They're sitting in an absolutely reflection pool still sea for days and they have no fresh water. Their food is turned to mud. It looks gross. Everybody's miserable, and Hollum kills himself so they can get their wind back.
1: And then it works from their perspective.
0: It works not because Hollum killed himself, but because Jack asks his forgiveness in front of the crew. And when he says, you know, if there are any of us that thought badly of him or treated him badly or failed him in respect of kinship or in respect of fellowship, May God forgive us, and may He forgive us too, and then the wind comes back.
2: Oh, I miss that that's cool.
0: yeah, it's not until he apologizes for failing hollem that that they that their luck turns around, which is really neat it's a It's a tiny detail in in the chronology of events, but it goes to show that that hollem wasn't the bad luck. the bad luck was how they were perceiving Hollum and how they treated him.
1: And the captain's inability to see what was going on, to really educate him about, like, this is what you need to be doing. Because we see the captain spend a lot of time educating these young men. He goes and spends significant amount of time with Blakeney. He gives him a book. He talks to him about what it is to be a captain, to meet Lord Nelson and all of that. But he doesn't give Hollum any of that. He does not give him any of that support. And I think that has a significant effect on how it turns out, because without that support, especially in that kind of system where you live or die based on your cooperation, and I can see how it would be really easy to not give that support to someone like Holland, especially for someone who is as brash and take charge as Jack is portrayed to be. I can see how he would view Hollum as, uh just get it together, man. Just fucking stop being a baby. And that's not what Hallam needed, and therefore there's a cascade of negative consequences because Jack isn't able to provide what this specific member of his crew needs.
2: And likely because Hallam in the past had some bad leadership. That would be my guess. Just because he's approaching 30, and I think part of of aubrey's dilemma is like i need to teach these younger kids how to be naval right. officers mm-hmm. i don't have time to reteach this dude shit he should already know you should already be ready right. to be a lieutenant like it's not my place It's kind. Of, you know what i mean so he's kind of like because yeah. he's all about sort of the structure of the way things are run in the navy and he said he, he said
0: you you failed to pass for a lieutenant twice but you you know your shit like you're not stupid like, right. So, what's going on? I, he doesn't know how to fix it. Right. He has no vocabulary to address what needs fixing with Hollum. There's nothing in his considerable toolbox to address Hollum's needs.
1: I think there's no psychological place for Hollum because it seems like Hollum is very different than what the Navy is looking for.
0: He's the son who should have gone to be a priest somewhere.
1: Exactly. And that's a reality of what the Navy had during that time. It's like, it didn't matter who you were. You were crammed into this box. And some people couldn't be crammed into boxes. And Hollum is obviously one of those to to a tragic outcome.
0: But then he dies and everything moves on.
2: All right, so... This is usually the point where Katie leads us into our breakdown, but that always leads us to her going last and having to listen to me and Liam pontificate about what we thought about the film overall. So I'd like Katie to go first this time for once. So this is the part where we talk about what the objective of the film was, whether it was on target or not, and whether we liked it. And this time Katie's going to go first.
1: I think the objective of this film is a bit muddied. Rather than a lot of the films we talk about, their objective is pretty clear. You know, if we're talking about Full Metal Jacket, the objective is to talk about the Vietnam War. Whereas this, it's not just talking about life in the Napoleonic War era for British uh, sailors. There's definitely more going on here. And I think it explores that in a thorough way. In a way, a lot of movies couldn't. Like I said, I've seen quite a few movies in in this genre. And this really gets into the nitty gritty of what it is to be, you know, the average sailor as well as the captain, as well as the doctor and all of that. And it does it really well. I think I felt like watching this, it gave me a great perspective on what it was like to live on one of those ships and to be one of those men, maybe not in... All of the detail because as we talked about, there's no sodomy in this. (laughs) The difficulties of psychology and humanity that they go through, like all of that is kind of left on the on the cutting floor. But it does get into the deeper psychological effects, the internal debate that the captain has about whether or not he is making the right choices when it comes to the competing aspects of the British Crown, his men, the ship. His enemies, like there's a lot going on that the captain really has to determine, okay, what am I going to prioritize here? And what am I going to let fall to the wayside? And this film illustrates that in a really great way. And I think it also shows the philosophical debate when it comes to the relationship between the captain and Matron, the, the surgeon, where Matron provides the opposite Captain is all about order and discipline and success and uh, reliance on his crew to fulfill the needs of the crown. Whereas the surgeon, Matron, is looking at this more from a humanist perspective of what do these men need? What can we use our resources and experience for? Like when they go to the Galapagos Islands, he's like, But we could be furthering science. And that's the point when him and the captain have this big break. It's not a permanent break, of course, but that's where they have really the first and only disagreement in this. And Matron ends up kind of winning that debate. And it ends up working out for them because that's how they're able to find the Akron later at the end of the film. As for being a realistic portrayal, it knocks it out of the park with a gorgeous cinematography. The sound design is amazing. Uh, that was something I noticed immediately.
0: It's like rope snapping porn,
1: right? It it is. <laughs> it's so and it, for those who care about sound design, it will really you know hit all the buttons for you.
0: If your ASMR fetish is ropes snapping, this is. <laughs> this is your jam
2: or
1: ship creaking
2: or cannonballs whizzing by
1: (laughs) yeah or the sound of the sea that overlays everything in this you know it captures all of that very well and you feel at certain points like you are on the ship with them and you can understand the labor that it takes to keep the ship going to repair it to fulfill the captain's needs like This film really captures a lot of that, which is something that's very difficult to do in today's day and age, partially because of budgets, partially because a lot of people are just willing to rely on CGI. And Peter Ware was really able to command the resources and effects to make this feel so realistic is unique. And I think this will retain its uniqueness throughout the ages, because it was kind of a a film of its time, because it was before CGI was really as fantastic as we look at it today. And studios were still willing to shell out that cash to make something look as good as they wanted. For me, I liked it. I didn't love it. But I also felt like I was transported to a different time which is not something that i say about a lot of period pieces because period pieces are so often elevated you know they're intensified to allow its audience to grasp what it felt like then and this movie feels like it just kind of lays it out there and lets its audience feel how they feel so I think it hits its target in some ways. But I do think from what I read, the books are far more about the relationship between the captain and Matron, and far more about discussing the conflict of duty and exploration. And I don't think the film really hits those points. I think it's much more about how a ship is run, how they succeed. There's a certain element of swashbuckling action, which is fun, to be clear. Super fun to watch. But I don't think that that's necessarily the the limitations of that. I don't necessarily think that's what they were going for. So I think anybody can watch this, but I only think certain people are going to enjoy it. Because if you're not willing to kind of look beneath what's going on, you're going to get bored because this is very slow moving. It is very slowly paced. And that's not a bad thing, but it is not going to work for a lot of people. Because if you go into this movie based on the trailers, you're going to think, oh, high adventure. And there definitely is that. But it is not the main focus of the film. So I liked it. And I would definitely, honestly, I definitely would have watched a sequel Because this movie very much sets it up for a sequel. And I think once you got over like introducing who the characters are in the same way as a Marvel movie, like the first Captain America movie, I love it. It's great, but it is very much an introduction. And for me, the Captain America movies that follow it are more entertaining to watch because we've gotten all that out of the way and we can just dive into a story. And so I think we would have gotten that with additional Master and Commander movies. But this one, I think, is to a certain extent, bogged down by the fact that we really have to introduce the audience to who these characters are before we're able to really jump into a storyline. I I was kind of on the fence, but I think for most people, I would say, oh, you want to watch a Napoleonic Wars Navy film? Master and Commander is your movie. If you haven't watched it, Probably give it a chance. Liam? Give us your thoughts. We're ready. So
0: I hate like 60% of what you just said.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. I am officially offended. That's
0: Liam's job is to hate 60% of everything. So No, I know 50% of everything.
1: I am officially 50% offended. Well,
0: good. No. So (laughs) I think the objective of this production somewhere along the way I don't know if it was in the writing. I don't know if this was like the producers sat down and wanted to do this. But the overall result, I think the, the objective is to-
1: Which Peter Ware helped write this, to be Okay. Clear.
0: This is a fan service movie for a fan base that nobody ever gave a shit about <laughs> until this movie came out. Like, so the, the Patrick O'Brien books that this is based on have a loyal following, but it's, it, it exists in this niche of literature of like historical fiction nerds.
2: Right. Pretty smart people. I'm just going to go on a limb and guess, generally speaking.
1: Is this like smaller than the Terry Pratchett following?
0: Way smaller than the Terry okay. Pratchett following. And no offense to the Terry Pratchett folks, probably more book smart, like nerdier, probably got better grades than the Terry Pratchett folks.
1: As a Terry Pratchett fan, this is my shocked face right now.
0: Well, (sighs) that's fine. (laughs) Just giving you shit. I'm just saying that you give me like 200 valedictorians, and I guarantee you more of them have probably read the Patrick O'Brien books than the Terry Pratchett books. The smart people who went on to like go do their own weird things and are very successful and happy probably read Terry Pratchett. The Patrick O'Brien books, there are nonfiction books about the Patrick O'Brien books. Like that's how deep the research Whoa. went into making these books. There's books in the nonfiction section called like Patrick O'Brien's Navy. that are just about <laughs> the Navy As depicted in Patrick O'Brien's novels. Like, if you don't know shit about Napoleonic Wars, English Navy, and you read the Patrick O'Brien books, you now know everything there is to know about the English Navy during the Napoleonic Wars.
2: I'm not going to lie. If I could pull a Michael Keaton style multiplicity, one of my clones will be reading this fucking series for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what they did... I, I, I said before that this is a, a masterpiece on multiple levels, but of adaptation. So you took all of the research that Patrick O'Brien puts into his novels, and then you adapt it to the big screen. But you're not doing one book. You're doing an adaptation of a 20-book series condensed into a two-and-a-half-hour movie. The writing is impeccable. It is period appropriate and in a way that communicates but isn't like it's it's ways that we understand what they're talking about but we would never think to phrase something that way the Mm -hmm. the one that comes to mind is when he's talking telling the the story about lord nelson and he says from any other man you know this is after he he says that his, his zeal for king and country keeps him warm and Stephen kind of rolls his eyes and he you know, for many other man, you might say, oh, what pitiful stuff and dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. Nobody would pick those words to go in that order to describe rolling your eyes at something that is just nonsense. You could have said you might dismiss it as nonsense and it would still be period appropriate because nonsense was a word that existed. And it's one that we could very easily use today. But to describe something as, oh, what pitiful stuff, that's awesome. Like it, It's just like those little details, the care that was put into this to take this, this giant scope of literature, this series, and make the best single movie that you could out of it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's the balance that required me to have the subtitles on. So that I could clearly understand what everyone was saying without needing any cliff notes or need to rewind for the most part unless I was writing down a quote. Where like the English was understandable and I got the sense of everything, but it was period appropriate to the point where like I needed to also read it while they were talking so that I didn't miss anything. I feel, I I feel like that was that balance, right?
0: And the the acting is incredible. Everybody in this movie is pitch perfect, from the kids up to Russell Crowe, who I think is a great actor, but I, I'm not in love with all of his performances. This seems as good a time as any to remind everybody that fuck Gladiator. Oh, boy.
1: I'm just gonna,
2: we're just going to cut that out, everyone. We'll just let Liam go off. No one will ever know. No, you're not. You can't. You talked
0: about it now. <laughs> you have to cut out even more but you know Paul Bettany is great like their dynamic is great this is the second time in two years, second time in 2 years that they worked together because they both played very similar kind of like what well, they 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 played off of each other as foils to each other in a in a beautiful mind Paul Bettany was the roommate right so they obviously had at least a decent working relationship and they play off of each other really 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 well. The soundtrack in this one piece of music, I mean, cause they do like a lot of Bach and things like that, Mm -hmm. but it works. It, It, it does. And there's one piece by an English composer named Rafe von Williams. And I think it's Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis. So it's like a piece by Thomas Tallis that Rafe von Williams reworked, but it's the one that they played a couple of times. I think when they're hacking the, ropes to let Warley sink with the wreckage and then again when they're when they're sewing up the bodies at the end and Blakeney is trying to sew up Calumny's body in his hammock with his one hand like that swelling music i actually Ooh. used that in in college i directed a production of Exit the King and i set like the end scene to to that same that same music
2: That scene made me tear up. Oh,
0: it's so good when he's
2: like, "I want to do it," and then he realizes he's missing an arm, and he's like, "And he needs help. I I need help." I was just like, "Oh man, this is rough."
0: And it's maybe this is a movie that isn't for everybody, but from the time it came out, as like I've I've had people like in two thousand three, and I've had people today who are like. Oh, I thought it was kind of boring. And my immediate response is just like, fuck you then. You're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like, just fuck you. Fuck everything about you. Just stop, stop <laughs> with the talking because you're wrong. Because it's it, this movie has me on the edge of my seat like the whole time. And I've seen this movie a lot. And I showed it to my kids and watching my kids watch this movie was great because my kids were likewise riveted and had like all of the appropriate reactions like when paul bettany is chasing the bug on the galapagos islands and you hold it and then like the camera shifts focus and you see the acker on there just sort of like chilling and then like the music kicks up a little bit just like real subtle that that rapid uh that rapid little like violin part my daughter was like is that the ship is that the ship like i was like yes this is, it was one of those, like, good parenting moments of, like, showing your kids something, and then they had the, the appropriate reaction. It was, like, showing my son Empire Strikes Back, and they had the Darth Vader reveal, and I forgot what it was like to not know that Darth Vader was Luke's father, but I got to see my son experience that for the first time, That's and cool. it was fan-fucking-tastic. But, yeah, like, there, there are tons of these moments in this movie. And it's, it's a riveting film. It is, I think the pacing in it is perfect. I would be hard-pressed to come up with a complaint about any aspect of this movie. It's one of the best films made in the 21st century. It is the best of its genre. And I remember when I saw it in the theater, before it even started, I knew I was in for some kind of weird spectacular treat because you know, you're sitting there and the first thing that comes up is the 20th century Fox fanfare, right? Like with the spotlights moving around and like the drums and everything. And then Miramax comes up and then, well, this was before Miramax was before we knew Miramax was creepy Like, don't make your faces at me right now.
1: I made a terrible face.
0: You did make it, which is fine because
1: I don't judge Miramax at this point.
0: Miramax conjures some, you know, bad associations in the Weinstein department, but it was a huge studio at the time. And then that was followed up with Universal Pictures. And I was like, I'm, you know, gun to my head. I can't remember having seen a movie that was so big. That it required three separate studios to all share the credit. I can't think of one. You don't see like Paramount and Disney and Warner Brothers. Like, it's, it's just not something you're going to see. And I never saw it before, and I haven't seen like that level of collaboration since. But yes, I think that this hit the target and then some because I've still never read the books, and this movie works fantastically well for me so i'm I'm not necessarily part of that that niche fandom that this was doing such intricate fan service to, and I fucking love it. I think it's great. And everybody should watch it and know that if you don't like it, I'm going to judge you harshly.:
1: I mean, so you agree with, you disagreed with sixty percent of my take, but I also liked it a lot.
2: You didn't like it enough.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Just
2: ignore him. I don't know why you're trying to engage.
1: Here it is, folks. You got to like it as much as Liam does. No,
2: that's impossible. (laughs)
0: But you have to like it more than you did.
1: And to be clear, folks, I'm the one who put this on the fucking poll. This was my pick for the poll.
0: Yeah, but you, you did that sight unseen.
1: I did because I was like, oh, that movie looks pretty awesome. I wanna watch it. So <laughs> I'll still
0: t- And was it as awesome as you thought it was going to be?
1: It was more awesome. Okay, good. Honestly. Okay. It was it was more awesome. I wasn't sure if Russell Crowe could pull it off.
0: I don't know. You 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 just seemed kind of like underwhelmed in your in your breakdown there. And that's what kind of disheartened me. You you seemed you seemed whelmed.
1: I seemed whelmed. Well I'm not going to go back on what I said, but I will say I did like it, and I'm glad that I picked it, because I feel like it was something totally different than what we've done before. And that was a really fun experience. Dan?
0: Dan, what's your breakdown, buddy?
2: Choose your words wisely. So, first off, I want to say to all the fans of this book series and all the readers, I'm very jealous of you guys. Knowing my reading history, I'm probably not going to make the time to read this series. But I wish that I could because I can tell just from the superficial things where it touches down. Because two hours and 18 minutes minus credits, two hours and 10, 12 minutes is not a lot of time. Yes, the pacing can be a little slow. And yes, if you don't know what you're approaching, this movie can feel a little long. Again, depending on what mindset you're in, but I mean, it, it can't possibly touch on all the information that's in these books. So I think when I heard Liam mention, you know, the relationship between the captain and the doctor, I can only imagine how much more the books delve into that. And that was a really important part of this. I mean, I left some things in the for my breakdown just because we didn't have the time to get into them in the in the regular episode, but that was a huge one. The synthesis of the conversations between the captain and the doctor, I wrote these down because I was like, I can really see what they're doing here where they're juxtaposing these two different men. Aubrey, who's personified by duty, honor, tradition, discipline. And the quote in one of these arguments they have is, men must be governed. Matron, by contrast, is, you know, he's like the naturalist. He's all about science, knowledge, compassion. I mean, he's the liberal between the two of them, right? Disdain for authority. He's rebellious. He questions authority. His quote is I'm rather understanding of mutiny. So it's kind of good in the context of the characters that he doesn't have a leadership role with the men. Being the surgeon and being a doctor and a naturalist and sort of the scientists on board. He's kind of separated from that because we would. I think we would have seen a lot more conflict between him and Aubrey had he had a military officer leadership role with the crew. He
0: also, I'm sorry, it didn't mean to interrupt, but like on that, he also has ties to Irish rebels in the books, apparently. Like he's a member of the United Irishmen and, and apparently he doesn't condone Wolf Tone's rising in a… I'm about to lose my Irishman card. Is it 1798? But but up to that point, he was fairly politically active in the the quest for Irish independence. There, and he like goes on to like it, at some point he serves as a spy for for the British. Like
1: I saw that. Yeah, yeah. like
0: he's you know when which they have that that line about uh well the the French have their spies in mm-hmm. in English government, same as we have ours. And I thought that was like a little nod to, to that.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and they also, there's the line about him being Irish. They, there's that mm-hmm. very quick quip about it. And so, I, and, and I assumed that there was more to that in the books. But, you know, again, I, I, I really appreciated how much they tried to condense into this very short story compared to, I'm sure the information that's in the books. And so for me, it felt like. You know, they say, okay, for example, with podcasting, this is advice that I think about all the time. They say, if you're trying to make a show for everyone, you're making a show for no one. And I think that's true for filmmaking as well. Like, you need to think about what your target audience is and make the movie for them. If it works for other people that aren't your main target, then great. But this does – as long as you're patient, as long as you're willing to give it the time that it deserves – and are willing to appreciate different things about different scenes. When there isn't combat, there's beautiful cinematography. When it's dark, there's incredible sound design and and music. When maybe none of that is going on for the like very few seconds that could possibly happen, the dialogue and the acting is amazing. So there's like always something to grab, and most of the time, all those elements are put together in the same scene, and it's just like a spectacle. So I definitely think. If you were trying to make a blockbuster hit, then this movie was obviously off because it was not that. But if you were trying to make a realistic depiction of this type of naval warfare during the Napoleonic times, but inject it with personality and nuance and moral quandary and all of these qualities that we see... A tug of war between, between the crew and the midshipmen, the officers, the captain, the doctor. All that stuff adds so many layers to it in a way that it does make it feel like a book in terms of its richness while the pacing is really... not bad to be honest there's always something going on and there's always some kind of action we didn't even have time really to discuss the action scenes in detail but the action is kind of bookended in the film there's the initial you know scene where where the acheron has the pounce on the surprise and attacks them and you see the receiving end of it and it is just pandemonium right i mean things exploding everywhere you're like holy shit good thing the captain had the second to tell people to get down or most of them would have been fucking dead like it's so realistic feeling and intense and then at the end of the film when they get to get the pounce and attack the akron in, in their sort of surprise counter-attack again they were prepared for it So they had all the guns set. They removed the wheels. You know, they only got the one shot, but they were aimed in. And then you get to see the close combat. The French crew who smartly kind of played dead until they were on board. And then it was swashbuckling time. But like none of it was cartoony. None of it felt removed from danger. I was scared the whole time. I'm like, oh shit, who's going to die now? Who's going to get stabbed with a sword? You know, like it was really so well done. It really kept me just connected and gripped the whole time. Shout out as a side note to Weta Workshops because I love Weta Workshops and they worked on 2049 and a lot of other films. For the miniature work in this film, they did the miniature ships, which it's so well done. I couldn't even tell you which scenes are miniatures and which aren't. That's how seamless the work was. But yeah, I think that in terms of having a little bit of something for everyone and really highlighting Again, taking advantage of this medium of cinema to highlight this period in naval warfare, I think that we're and everyone else really nailed it and knocked it out of the park. And it's not something I could appreciate the first time around when I was 20, and less experience with film and literature and the time period, etc. But now looking back on it almost 20 years later, I really was able to absorb it and appreciate The layers that they put into this film so it's something that i didn't even like the first time i saw it i was like bored with it this time around really giving it its due diligence i loved it and i thought it was a phenomenal job and deserved more accolades but again it sucks when you're up against a peter jackson lord of the rings movie that's tough battle so yeah I really really love this film and I'm really glad that it won out in the audience poll. I know there's a lot of other people excited to listen to this episode cuz they obviously voted for it. So, thanks for voting for this, you guys, cuz I was uh pleasantly surprised at how well this worked and how amazing a film it is. It's uh
0: it it's something that I love when I see it and I don't see it often enough. And you're talking about like it having an appeal beyond the target audience. The idea that if you make something good enough, it can transcend the concept of a target audience. If you show up and do everything to the best of your abilities, quality doesn't have a target audience. This is something that it's just like, this shouldn't have a very big audience at all. It's a really nerdy historical naval warfare battle about two best friends <laughs>
1: like, right? you know, it's, it's so niche
0: and, and the dialogue doesn't have a wide appeal like we said it's got some archaic turns of phrase there but if you if you show up to work and you do the thing right people will see it and appreciate it and i don't think enough things are made with that kind of mindset where it's like we're just going to show up today and do our absolute best on this thing And people will appreciate the quality. Definitely.
2: What are we doing next?
1: So next time on Danger Close, we are talking about We Were Soldiers, the 2002 film directed by Randall Wallace and starring Mel Gibson, Madeline Stowe, and Greg Kinnear with a special surprise performance by Sam Elliott.
2: Right. This is the Mel Gibson leading but not directed by film. I forgot about that. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's from the screenwriter of Braveheart.
2: Oh, and he's a descendant of William Wallace.
0: Randall Wallace wrote Braveheart and then got to direct this one.
1: He also directed uh, Secretariat and wrote Pearl Harbor, oh. which are are two- Not good things to have under your belt. No.
2: Is is Secretariat a war film?
1: Uh, yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> the horses actually fight to the death. Sweet. Oh, my God. He wrote the screenplay for Man in the Iron Mask. And here's my favorite. The story for the TV movie of Dark Angel, which is the most obscure thing I've ever seen. Wow.
2: Randall. I am going to interview my really good friend's father, who was in the Green Berets during Vietnam, and- is associated with the story in We Were Soldiers. I'm not going to be able to get that interview done or published before that episode comes out, but down the road, we're going to oh. get to get a firsthand account of I, – I haven't done the research yet, so I'm not 100% sure, but I know that it's events.
0: It's early days of Vietnam. I think it was like the first time they used helicopters in combat.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his story is related to this, which will be cool.
1: That'll be awesome nice. to hear.
2: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate you guys listening and your support. I think at this point, we can't... I know we keep talking about this, but now that it's becoming more concrete, we are going to launch our Patreon at the very beginning of September here, either the first or the third. I think by that Friday, we'll be launching and we are really excited to share with you guys what we've recorded a long time ago but we're now editing and putting together and we'll give you more details on how to sign up for that. Most of the information on the show and all the discussions are in our Facebook groups, so join us on Facebook at the Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group and you'll get all the updates and all the information and everything else we're doing. Thanks to my partners Katie and Liam and we'll talk to you guys on the next one.
0: Bye.